invite you to open a Bible to Romans chapter 12, if you would, please. The first sermon I ever preached, I preached from this text. You have no idea how grateful you are that I'm not going to preach that sermon tonight. <laughs> I preached that sermon at Calvary Baptist Church in Alvin, Texas, outside of Houston, when I was a freshman in college. Nolan Ryan is from Alvin, Texas. There's a big sign when you drive through Alvin, Texas, says birthplace of Nolan, home place of Nolan Ryan. No sign says, place where Jim Dennison preached his first sermon. <laughs> so one time, a good friend of mine was a minority owner of the Rangers back in the day, and he brought me to one of the games, and there was Nolan Ryan in the owner suite down there, just there. And so we walked in, we were talking. Terrific guy, as you would expect. And I said, well, I have a bone to pick with you, which Nolan Ryan doesn't hear that a lot. And I said, why is it that in Alvin, Texas, there's this sign that says, home place of Nolan Ryan, and no sign says, place where Jim Dennison preached his first sermon. He wasn't helpful. He, <laughs> he thought I should talk to the city council about that. He was not willing to help me. So I am not going to inflict that sermon on you, but we will look to that text here in just a bit as we talk together around what's happening in the culture and why it's happening and what it is that you and I can do about it. We talked about some this morning, very briefly, that we'll unpack in greater detail tonight and try to get a sense of this. This tsunami, this massive tidal wave you can see caused by underwater forces you can't see. A lot of life works that way. A lot of life works in the things you can see caused by the things you can't see. And that's what we're talking about from a cultural perspective tonight. So I know already how it's led us to pray. I would like on my own heart just to take a moment to pray as well. And so join me, please. Father, now I pray that my words would only be your words. I ask you to take away any word that isn't yours, add any word that is yours. You come and please speak now, Father, and help us to hear your voice, hear your spirit. I pray that for me and us in Jesus' name. Amen. Howard and I share an admiration for Ron Skates at uh, Highland Park Press. He's the one that taught me to pray. Take away any word, add any word. Learn that from Ron. Didn't learn everything from Ron, but I learned that from Ron. <laughs> Ron and I are the best pastor friends I've ever had. Uh, we're going to do each other's funerals, except he wants to do mine first. And that doesn't seem, <laughs> doesn't seem right, so I don't know how that's going to work. But uh, I did learn that from Ron anyway, and for that I, I'm, I'm grateful, I think. I think, I think I'm grateful. So... We're all these days focused, obviously, on the horrors that are happening in the Ukraine. You've been following the story even today, the continued shelling of civilian passageways that were to exist. Just before I came, the ominous news that Russia is now hiring Syrian mercenaries that understand guerrilla street fighting on a level the Russians don't as they continue to encircle Kyiv. Well, I've been doing geopolitical analysis a long time and in media things I'm asked quite often, why is Russia doing this? It illustrates our point tonight. A fellow named George Friedman in geopolitical analysis years ago made popular the idea of a meta-narrative, a north on the compass that every nation, really any culture, even a church, even a community, has a kind of a cultural DNA. And if you can figure out what their meta-narrative is, you can better understand the past, predict the future. Putin's meta-narrative is to rebuild Mother Russia. It's to rebuild a Russian empire and nothing less. He's been saying that for 20 years. We just haven't been listening. And so the western edge of Russia, whether it's Ukraine or Belarus or even the NATO nations, is a step towards securing his flank from Europe. He remembers the invasions. 27 million Russians died in World War II. 
He wants that security. He wants the Black Sea, a warm water port. He wants the agriculture of Ukraine. He ultimately wants to demolish or on some level disable the dem democratic processes of Western Europe. And ultimately, he wants her to be a mother Russia. That's what he's after. He's been saying that for 20 years. We just haven't been listening. When you understand why something happens, you can better understand the past and predict the future. Well, let's apply that thinking here. We were saying this morning, the book talks about this rising tide of cultural opposition, unprecedented in American history. Four underwater earthquakes causing this massive tsunami where the fastest growing religious demographic are those who say they have no religion. Where for the first time in American history, less than 50% of Americans even have a relationship with a church, a synagogue, or a mosque. Where Christians are being called intolerant and homophobic and bigoted and prejudiced and dangerous on an unprecedented level. There's a thing called the Religious Exemption Accountability Project that filed a class action lawsuit last year against the United States Department of Education alleging that faith-based schools discriminate against LGBTQ individuals by virtue of their moral stands and demanding that the Department of Education withhold all federal funding to those schools. Four billion dollars is in question in the claim that these schools are homophobic, bigoted, prejudiced, narrow-minded, discriminatory, and dangerous. Dallas Baptist University, where I teach in the doctoral program, would lose a third of our budget if that lawsuit were to prevail. What's behind this? How did we get here? Well, the four underwater earthquakes, very briefly. We'll do some bad news, then we'll get to some good news. The first is a rejection of biblical truth and a claim that truth is what you believe it to be. And if you disagree, then your idea is outdated and irrelevant. So, there's a fellow named Immanuel Kant, died around 1810 or so, who had this idea that your mind interprets your senses and the result is knowledge. My mind interprets my senses, the result is knowledge. Your mind isn't mine, mine isn't yours, your senses aren't mine, mine aren't yours. So there can be no such thing as objective truth. Can't know the thing in itself, he said. I can't know this microphone in itself. I can know what it looks like, I can know what it sounds like, I can lick it and tell you what it tastes like, but I can't know the microphone in itself, only my experience of it. And my experience may not be your experience, said Kant. This idea swept Europe, turned cathedrals into museums. Have you been in the great churches of Europe? Today, four times as many Muslims go to mosque on Friday as Christians go to church on Sunday in Great Britain. The Bible's a diary of religious experience. The church exists to do social agency and really nothing else. And to tell people they need what we have is oppressive and unfair, forcing our beliefs on others. As a result of this idea that became European conventional wisdom a long time before America, lots of reasons for that. After World War II, we started sending our best scholars there, bringing their scholars here. The world gets smaller. It's called postmodern relativism. Now the conventional wisdom is you have no right to force your beliefs on me. 47% of millennial evangelicals say evangelism is the improper imposition of their beliefs on others. 47% of evangelical millennials. Well, now that fails the logic test, as we said this morning. To say there's no such thing as truth is to make a truth claim, right? No such thing as absolute truth, and we're sure of it. Fails a practical test. If all truth is personal, individual, and subjective, then does that make 9-11 just Al-Qaeda's truth, or the invasion of Ukraine just Putin's truth? 
So how do you respond? We respond by demonstrating the relevance of our faith, our beliefs, our truth to be the truth. So 21st century looks more like the first century than any in between. In the first century, no written Bibles yet, no what we think of as institutional church, no political leverage in the first century. Abortion was a very dangerous procedure relative to the mother, so typically an unwanted baby was thrown out in the trash. We have a letter from a soldier on the battlefield, Roman soldier, back to his pregnant wife, saying if it's a boy, keep it, if it's a girl, throw it out. The early Christians couldn't make that illegal, so they went to the trash heaps and they rescued the babies. They couldn't make slavery illegal in the first century, didn't have the political capital to do that. So they went to the slave markets and they bought the slaves and set them free. In a culture that measures truth by relevance, the key is for you and me to demonstrate the relevance of our faith so clearly, to make our truth so winsome that others might consider our truth as their truth and that's how they meet the truth. So in a relativistic culture that says that truth is personal, individual, and subjective, if we live the truth, they will see the truth. Quick example and we'll move on. I grew up in Houston, Texas. My father had been a Sunday school teacher, fought in the Second World War, and never went to church again. And so I grew up in a loving, wonderful home, but no spiritual life, all my father's questions. Got invited to ride the church bus on a Sunday, and that's how I heard the gospel. Thrilled my soul this morning here at First Baptist as a young man came forward to join the church out of this church's van ministry. Exactly what I came out of, how he's so grateful for that. Driving the bus in my day, bringing me to church. After a few weeks of coming to church, I asked my Sunday school teacher one Sunday morning, how can I have what you have? I just saw something in them. There was a joy, there was a peace, there was something, there was a relevance to their faith. I didn't ask, how can I be justified and sanctified? I asked, how can I have what you have? And she led me to faith in Christ. It still works. If we'll demonstrate the relevance in a post-truth culture of the truth. Well, the second earthquake, the rejection of biblical morality, so-called sexual revolution. 1953, Hugh Hefner, Playboy, the normalization of pornography, from 53 in print, it moves eventually to DVDs in the 90s, and now with internet. And now it is estimated that $120 billion are spent around the world on child pornography. More pornographic traffic every year in the United States than all the major sports leagues combined. Now we're talking about the legitimization, the normalization of sex outside of marriage as birth control is legalized in 1960. And now that becomes conventional wisdom, conventional culture. Now you're remembering some of us old enough to remember kind of this hippie generation, free love and Woodstock and all that sort of thing. Moving forward from then until today, 1969, the Stonewall riots, and now we see LGBTQ activism to normalize and then to legalize with Obergefell, legalizing same-sex marriage, now to stigmatize those who disagree as homophobic, and then to criminalize disagreement, the so-called Equality Act, the idea that if you disagree, you're not only homophobic, you're bigoted, prejudiced, narrow-minded, discriminatory, and intolerant. So vital that we understand how the other side understands this. So many people in our culture who genuinely believe 
genuinely believe that civil rights in the 60s relative to racial minorities are exactly the same issue relative to sexual minorities today, who are convinced that my belief that marriage ought to be between a man and a woman, a covenant relationship between a man and a woman, is just as bigoted and prejudiced as if I believed marriage ought to only be between white people. They see it as exactly the same way. They're convinced of that. The reason normalization every year during Pride Month is so vital to the culture is that they see it as critical to raise the next generation to get past the homophobia of their parents. When our kids were growing up, we spent a good deal of time in Atlanta, lived in Atlanta a number of years, and Midland before that, and then Dallas after that. And as they were growing up, Jan and I did all we could to help our kids embrace racial equality. We did everything we could to indoctrinate them, you could say, in understanding the significance of racial equality and that God loves each of us as much as he loves all of us and that all races are equal before God. We did everything we could to be as proactive about that as we could. It's exactly what's being done now with our children and grandchildren relative to gender equality or sexual equality, LGBTQ equality, the same idea. And we're not done yet from Legalizing same-sex marriage, the next step is legalizing polygamous relationships. Chief Justice Roberts, in his dissent in the 2015 Obergefell decision, said that the language, the logic used to legitimize same-sex marriage is exactly the same logic that could be used to legitimize, to legalize what he called plural marriage or polygamous marriage, and that's the next step. Three townships now have already done that in the United States, to legalize polygamous marriages relative to civil rights and such. There are 50 to 100,000 polygamous Muslim families in America. In Islam, as you know, a man can marry up to four wives. So the way it's done in the United States is he marries his first wife legally and the next three in civil ceremonies at the mosque. They're not legal marriages, but they're practical marriages. And the argument is, what right does America have to discriminate against Muslims? If we can't say what number or what gender you can marry, what right do we have to say what number you can marry? So polygamy is next, and what's called polyamory, many loves. The next stage as the train continues down the track is what's known as consensual marriage. There's an argument right now, the starting of a movement for consensual marriage, to legalize any marriage of any kind between any individuals of any biological relationship or any age. Consensual marriage. And along with that, I'm sorry to say, there's a growing normalization of something known as zoophilia, which is sexual relationships between people and animals. <coughs> there was a, an award-winning biography a couple years ago called Dolphin Lover, and it's what the title says. New Yorker had a 6,400-word glowing article a couple years ago extolling a man who has a sexual relationship with a horse. Because again, if all truth is personal, individual, and subjective, then that applies to your body, it applies to your gender, to your sexual orientation, and that's just what the culture believes. That same ethos applies to abortion. Have you seen the signs? My body, my choice. It applies to euthanasia, or physician-assisted death. That's available to one in five Americans. I'm afraid it will one day be a civil right. I do medical ethics at Baylor Scott and White Healthcare. We're very concerned about a day when it could be law that any individual could request physician-assisted death, and we would have to comply regardless of our religious beliefs and preferences. 
Some read the Equality Act to say that a woman should have access to an abortion regardless of the religious convictions of the healthcare provider. We don't do voluntary termination of pregnancy at Baylor, except to save the life of the mother or for fetal deformity incompatible with life. But we get asked to do abortions based on gender. We get asked to do abortions simply because they have enough kids and don't want more. We won't do that, but others will. And in this space that says that biblical morality is intolerant, that train's continuing down the track. So how do we respond? Well, this is a place where secular arguments for spiritual truth are really important. It's valuable to be able to say, here's what the Bible says. Value to be able to say that, whether it's LGBTQ behavior, whether it is abortion, the sanctity of life, whatever that might be. But in a culture says, that's just your truth. You have no right to force your beliefs on me in a culture like that. Secular arguments are vital as well. The transgender argument relative to women's athletics is an example. You may be following the story of the swimmer, the transgender swimmer. She or he was 462nd ranked as a male swimmer, now first ranked as a female swimmer. And yes, I'm aware that this individual did do testosterone treatments and estrogen treatments and all of that, but none of that changed the swimmer's height or lung capacity or arm length or hand size or pelvic width or other things that give the swimmer an intrinsic advantage such that the swimmer's teammates at the Ivy League school where the swimmer competes anonymously appealed to the NCAA to step in. Transgender issues relative to locker rooms, relative to privacy for my second grade granddaughter are the Achilles heel of LGBTQ activism in our culture. Depression rates relative to LGBTQ activism, I'm sorry to say, continue to be at epidemic proportion. And people will tell you, well, that's just because we're so homophobic here in America. Well, in the Netherlands and Belgium and, and Sweden, there's been acceptance of LGBTQ behavior for decades and still Suicide rates three times the peer group. Depression rates four to five times the peer group. I'm not, I'm sorry to say that, but I'm here to say there are secular reasons why the Bible's right about sexual morality, about biblical morality. It's important to know that, but it's especially important to respond to this as beggars helping beggars find bread. We are all broken sexually, my friends. We're all tempted sexually. None of us is better than. Being gay is not the unpardonable sin. God loves LGBTQ people just as much as he loves anybody else. Jesus died for all of us. All sin breaks the heart of God. And so the posture, the biblical posture is speaking the truth in love, building relationships, earning the right to be heard, confessing the degree to which the church has in the past and some in the present been unfair to LGBTQ individuals, building bridges of relationship and sharing the good news of God's redemptive, gracious love. I will tell you some of my heroes are same-sex attracted people who are choosing to live a celibate life because they believe that is God's best for them. As a heterosexual male happily married for 41 years, I do not know what that's like. And I so admire their faith. Well, we could talk a long time about that, couldn't we? That's the second earthquake causing this tsunami, this belief that we are intolerant in terms of our ethics. The other two very quickly. The third is a rejection of biblical witness as oppressive. And for that, we're thinking about critical theory, critical race theory. 
critical theory that's a Marxist construct, goes back to the 20s and 30s in Germany, the Frankfurt School, Max Horkheimer, sees us in classes. Majority classes got to be majority by oppressing minority classes. That's what critical theory says. Can be applied to race, critical race theory that started in the 70s. It can be applied to gender, can be applied to sexual minorities, can be applied a variety of ways. But it would say to us in this room, we're the majority in America, so we are by definition oppressors of the minority, by definition. And so we're not only outdated, we're not only intolerant, now we are oppressive, would be the belief. And now you get to the fourth, which is the claim that religious faith is dangerous, flies planes into buildings, it causes 9-11s and clergy abuse scandals, and we've outlived this. We scientifically sophisticated people know better than all of this. And we now understand that religion is an impediment to authentic flourishing, which is what our best life is. And so you in this room who showed up on a Sunday night just have to understand that culture is moving past you. And now the world gets it that our beliefs are outdated and intolerant and oppressive and dangerous to society. There was an archbishop, Catholic, named Francis George. In 2010, he was dying of cancer, made a statement, said, I expect to die in bed. I expect my successor to die in prison. I expect his successor to die a martyr in the public square. I expect his successor to pick up the broken pieces of a ruined society as the church has done so often in the past. Well, I'm not here to say he's right, but I'm not here to say he's wrong. We don't feel it in Amarillo. We don't feel it much in Dallas. We see it on the coasts. We see it in the academies. We're seeing it more and more in the major cities. A rising belief that we have not faced in American history. In the founding, the belief was that a democracy depends on morality and morality depended on a consensual kind of Judeo-Christian worldview. In the founding, and I'm not claiming all the founders were evangelical Baptist deacons, trust me, by no means would that be true. May not be a good idea if that was true. No sense is that the case, but even John Adams, who was himself a Unitarian, would say the Constitution depends on a moral religious people and is wholly unsuited to the governance of any other. Even the founders understood that, that there was a consensual religiosity, a consensual ethic that was essential to the democratic experiment. You know, Plato said democracy would never work. He said citizens would inevitably discover they could cast ballots based on personal preference rather than the collective good, and democracy would be imperiled. I wonder if we're there. So what do we do? That's the bad news. Let's dismiss, let's go home. Aren't you glad you came tonight? Let's, let's, let's finish with some good news, shall we? We promised Romans 12, and I promise not to preach my first sermon to you. So if you look at this text with me, let's just walk through this very familiar passage. And then I'd like to draw together three principles that I believe are essential to making the change that is so critical to our culture in our day. Romans 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, and you could translate it brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. 
Walk through that with me for just a moment. I appeal to you. Appeal is the strongest word available to Paul in the Greek language. I beseech you, it says in the King James. I'm begging you, says the greatest apostle in Christian history, author of half of the New Testament. When he's begging you to do something, we ought to do it. I appeal to you. In the Greek, it's plural. It's all of you. Not just the pastors here on the front row, not just staff, not just seminary students. I appeal to all of you. If he were writing it in Texas, he would say, I appeal to y'all. There ought to be a Texan translation, you know? There's an NIV and an ESV. There ought to be a, what would that be? A TSV, a Texas Standard Version. Somebody ought to do that. I appeal to y'all, therefore, brothers. And in the original, Adolf voice here should be translated brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God. Because of what God's done for you. Don't do this so God will like you. Do it because God likes you. Don't do this so God will love you. Do it because God loves you. By the mercies of God. In his day, the Roman religion of the day was this transactional thing where you place a sacrifice at the altar so the gods will bless your crops. Or so you can get wisdom or go into war so you sacrifice to Mars or Ares or whatever. Transactional. That leaked into the church too. Go to church on Sunday, so God will bless you on Monday. Come on Sunday night, so God will bless you on Monday morning. Have a quiet time, so God will bless your day. Give money, so God will bless your money. Transactional. This doesn't say that. This says do this because of the mercies of God. Do what I'm about to say because God loves you, not so he will love you. Do this not in transactional religion, but transformational relationship. That's what we're after here, Paul says. In light of the mercies of God, he says, present your bodies. The word translated presents, a technical word for putting a sacrifice on an altar. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. When you sacrificed a lamb, the whole thing went on the altar. Not just a leg, not just an ear. Not just Sunday. Not just a quiet time. Not just a tithe. Present your bodies. All of you. Not as a one-time sacrifice. Get that done and it's over. As a living sacrifice. Present tense imperative. As a continued living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God. That is what God calls worship. Not church attendance. Good to have church attendance. Good means to an end. You don't go to church. You are the church. And this is worship. So the thing God wants us to do to be the change we wish to see. The thing God wants us to do in the Rome of our day starts with a daily continued submission of our lives to God as King all day, every day. I'm convinced if Paul was here tonight, he could speak only one text of all the things the Holy Spirit inspired him to write. This is what he would say to us. We're living in Rome now. We're back in the Roman Empire now. And this is his word to Roman Christians now. Present your bodies, give your lives every day. Sacrifice to the Lord. Watchman Nee made a statement in his book, The Normal Christian Life, that I want you to hear. A day must come in our lives as definite as the day of our conversion when we give up all right to ourselves and submit to the absolute lordship of Jesus Christ. There must be a day when without reservation we surrender everything to him, ourselves, our families, our possessions, our business, and our time. All we are and have becomes his to be held henceforth entirely at his disposal. From that day we are no longer our own masters but only stewards. Not until the lordship of Jesus Christ is a settled thing in our hearts can the Spirit really operate effectively in us. 
He cannot direct our lives effectually until all control of them is committed to him. If we do not give him absolute authority in our lives, he can be present, but he cannot be powerful. The power of the Spirit is stayed. When's the last time you presented your body as a living sacrifice? When's the last time you intentionally, holistically submitted your life to Jesus, gave all of you to all of him, whatever it takes, whatever you ask, whatever the cost, I'm fully and only yours. That's worship. That's where it starts. You might ask, what does that mean practically? What does that look like? Here are the two ways in verse 2 to do what verse 1 says. Verse 2 first says, do not be conformed to this world. Stop being conformed to this world is really the Greek. Stop being formed like this world. Stop believing that truth is personal. Stop believing that biblical morality is outdated and intolerant. Stop believing that your faith is oppressive and dangerous. Stop going along with that. Stop accepting that. Stop living by the standard of the culture. Stop being one way on Sunday and another way on Monday. Stop being conformed to the pattern of this world, Paul says. Again, to quote Watchman Nee, I thought this was brilliant. I saw this just today. If you would test the character of anything, you need only inquire whether that thing leads you to God or away from God. If you would test the character of anything, you need only inquire whether that thing leads you to God or away from God. Stop being conformed to the pattern of this world. What does that mean? What does that look like? When I was pastoring in Atlanta, we had a man on our staff who had come to us from Campus Crusade for Christ, where he'd served for a number of years. When he was doing that, he picked up a discipline that he shared with us called a spiritual inventory. The idea is to get a piece of paper and a pen, get alone with God, ask the Lord to bring to your mind anything in your life that displeases him, and write down what comes to your thoughts. And then confess what you've written specifically. Throw the paper away. Spiritual inventory. Well, our staff was about to go on a spiritual retreat together, Ignatius House, a Jesuit Catholic retreat center in north of Atlanta that has come to mean a great deal to me over the years. And so we thought, well, Dan, lead us in one of these spiritual inventories. Let's just kind of do that. And so we got everybody a little late and half by five and a half pad of paper. Some needed more paper than other, I was sure. Some might need several pencils, you know. And uh, we gave everybody, you know, a pad and pencil, and Dan explained what I just said. And then we gave everybody an hour or so, just to kind of go off and find a place to sit and do this. Just say, Lord, bring to my mind anything I need to confess. And write down very specific. No one's going to see this. We're not turning this in. Very specifically, write down what comes to your thoughts. Then one by one, confess what you've written. Ask God to forgive you and cleanse you. And then we came back together, and we tore the paper off. There was a fire in the fireplace, and we threw the paper in the fireplace. Well, I'll tell you, I went. I remember it like yesterday where I was, this bench I was sitting on by the Chattahoochee River at this Ignatius House Catholic Retreat Center, sat down on that bench, and I said, okay, Lord, what would you have me confess to you? The first two or three things I wrote on the paper were things I knew I needed to confess, things I just hadn't gotten to yet. And then I will tell you, I started taking dictation. Things started coming to my mind, I had no idea I needed to confess because I hadn't asked where I was being conformed to the pattern of this world. 
Now I have to do one of those inventories every week at least. Keep short accounts. Dwight Moody said, I'm a bu leaky bucket that needs often to be refilled. Well, I need often to be emptied and then refilled. I want to invite you to do that, even tonight. Take 15 minutes before you go to bed tonight. Piece of paper and a pen. Lord, anything I need to confess to you, anything hindering your spirit in my life, write down what comes to your thoughts. Confess it. Shred it. Flush it. Claim the grace of God. Stop being conformed. How can we ask the culture to be what we're not? How can we lead people where we're not willing to go? How can we give what we don't have? We have to be the change we want to see. And so it's a daily decision to be submitted to Christ as King, to get off the throne, to be yielded. And what that means in practical terms is refusing to be conformed, but instead, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Conform is to be made like, transform is to be changed from within by the renewing of your mind. In the providence of God, with us together from our various faith traditions tonight, as a lifelong Baptist, I will say to you, I think it's so appropriate we're having this conversation the first Sunday of Lent. Now, some of us Baptists don't even know what that is. <laughs> Lent. Lent is a 40-day, 47 if you count Sundays, period of preparation to celebrate Easter that has been going on in the Christian church on one level or another for 20 centuries. It's a marvelous way to seek a relationship with Jesus on a level of intimacy we never have. So let me urge us during this season to be transformed by the renewing of our minds by the practice of spiritual disciplines. If you're not reading the Word every day, start reading the Word every day, even for just a few minutes. Get a Bible and a pen and write down what comes to your thoughts because that's God preaching. G.I. Packer said the Bible is God preaching. And listen to God as He speaks through His Word. Take time every day. Make an appointment with Him. Put it on your schedule. Put it on your calendar to be alone with Him, not just to talk to Him, but to listen to Him. Mother Teresa said when she began her religious life, she spent 90% of her prayer time talking. Toward the end of her life, she spent 90% of her prayer time listening. When last, when last did you listen to God? For even 10 minutes. Try the spiritual discipline of meditation. Does that scare anybody here in this Baptist church tonight? Meditation is focusing on something God's done or something God has said and asking Him to speak to you through it. When I became pastor First Baptist in Midland, Texas, I was 30 years of age and terrified. I'd pastored a church of 100 on a good day, and this church has 8,000 members, and what on earth am I doing here? And they're going to figure it out soon, and the gig is going to be up, and what's going on here? And I was one night on our back porch. We had a tree in Midland. Every tree is planted, right? We know it's spring because the tree gets a leaf, and in the fall, the tree loses its leaf. And we had a tree there, the tree, the tree was there. And I was sitting on this back porch, and I was saying, Lord, I just speak to me. And a leaf from the tree blew over by my feet, and I felt led to pick it up and look at it and examine it. Never done that before. And I began noticing the detail of this leaf, the design, the intricacy, the veins, 
I began thinking about 10th grade science and how leaves work and chlorophyll from what I could remember of all of that and the incredible pattern of this leaf. And I sensed the Lord say to me, if I can design a leaf, I can design your life. Well, that's meditating. When God called us from Atlanta to Dallas, I came back to Atlanta a few months later to do a friend's wedding, and I went back to Ignatius South, a Jesuit Catholic retreat center in Atlanta that I treasure so much. And I was sitting on this deck looking out over the Chattahoochee, and again, we didn't want to leave Atlanta, didn't know why God had called us to Dallas. I was in this point, this early period, God, what's going on here? And I noticed a worm making its way across the wooden railing of the deck beyond which is the river. And I watched that worm inching its way across that rail there. Worm had no idea that thing out there is called the Chattahoochee River. No idea. I'm sitting here looking at it. No idea. I could squash it with my shoe if I wanted to. He's just a worm doing what worms do. And he's just making his way across that beam there. And I watched him for a little while. And I sense the Lord say, just stay on the beam. I'll take care of everything else. God speaks through worms and leaves and all that he has made. The heavens declare the glory of God. Take some time this Lenten season to meditate on his word in his world. Take some time for solitude. No, excuse me, it was John R. W. Scott, uh, Stott who said, the great Anglican, wonderful John R. W. Stott, who said he had to spend an hour a day, a day a week, a week a year, alone with God. Well, I don't know if you can do that, an hour a day, a day a week, and a week a year, but what will you do? to get alone with God. Practice some of the disciplines. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And you know what will happen? The Bible says you will test and experience God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. And the world will see what you have, and the world will want what you have. And as Alfred North Whitehead said, you will plant trees you'll never sit under. And day by day, step by step, you will be the change the world needs to see. So let's start all of that here in Amarillo. I don't know what you can do about Beijing. I don't know what you can do about London or what you can do about New York. But God called you to Amarillo. This is your Jerusalem. Heard a pastor say, every Christian should have their own personal Acts 1-8 strategy. What's your strategy for Amarillo and then Texas and then the uttermost parts of the earth? What influence has God entrusted to you? where you live, where you go to school, where you work. Would you tonight present that influence, present your body a living sacrifice? Would you say to God tonight, whatever it takes, whatever you ask, whatever the cost, would you say to God tonight, all of me belongs to you? Would you make that transaction with God? Would you make that submission to God? Would you decide to God to sell out? Blank check, blank check, I'm yours. In order to fulfill that commitment, would you refuse to be conformed to the pattern of this world? Would you tonight take even 15 minutes for a spiritual inventory? Would you daily refuse the molding of the world by the power of the Holy Spirit? Would you, over this Lenten season, be renewed, transformed by the daily practice of the presence of Jesus? If you will do that, I promise you, the darker the room, the more powerful the light. I was in Carlsbad Cavern some years ago with a youth group from the first church I pastored, New Hope Baptist Church in Mansfield, Texas. 
when I went there, I was a uh, doctoral student at the seminary. When I went there, they changed the title to No Hope Baptist Church or Last Hope Baptist Church or Lost Hope Baptist Church. Uh, you know, poor people, wonderful folks. I loved being there, great experience. They put my name on the sign out there on hooks. I could never get them to close the hooks. <laughs> I said, you know, a pair of pliers, you could close that. Never will forget, M.A. Dean, who was the chairman of the Property and Grounds Committee, said, well, preacher, just be glad we didn't put it on a chalkboard. I guess I should be grateful for that, right? So, well, when you're in a church that size with all of two staff members, everybody does everything. So we had a youth group that was going to Carlsbad Caverns. And so I, of course, went along. Never been there before. Maybe you've been. I had never been to Carlsbad Caverns. So we make our way in and we get down and we're on this tour group. And they took us down to the deepest part of the caverns. And we're down there, about 30 of us in this group. And then the tour guide uh, has us all sit down on this kind of rocky ledge there. Then he turns off his flashlight pitch black can't see the hand in front of your face never seen it that dark in my life you could feel the darkness you sat there waiting for your eyes to adjust but there was nothing to adjust to pitch black let us sit there for a minute it was getting pretty uncomfortable then he turned his flashlight back on and instantly our eyes were drawn to that light couldn't help it didn't have to think about it. And in that instant, the light defeated the dark. Because it always does. It always does. The darker the room, the more needed the light, the more obvious the light, the more powerful the light. And now remember that Jesus said, you are the light of the world. You're in a dark room. You've got the flashlight. If the room is dark, whose fault is that? When you turn on the flashlight, what happens? I'll close. I don't know if I've, it's, I've been to, gotten to be to Amarillo a number of times over the years. And at some point along the way, I must have shared this, I would think. But I felt prompted this afternoon to close with this tonight again. Uh, my favorite declaration of faith outside the Bible itself. I recited at the garden tomb when we go to Israel. I've shared it lots of places over the years. I was pastoring in Atlanta when a very dear friend of mine, a mentor of mine there, first gave this to me. He was the founder of a global missions organization and some of his missionaries in Zimbabwe had given this to him and he shared it with me. Since he shared it with me, I've seen it online in a variety of different formats, a number of different authorships and attributions, that sort of thing. But this version that has meant so much to me was found in Zimbabwe in the diary, the journal, of a young pastor who was martyred for his faith. After he died for Christ, gave his life for the gospel, his wife, his widow, found this declaration of faith. It's called Fellowship of the Unashamed. You can find it online, Fellowship of the Unashamed. And again, you'll find all sorts of different versions of it and authors, that sort of thing. But this is the version that has meant so much to me over these years. And I invite you to make this your declaration to God tonight as well. That pastor wrote these words. I am part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have Holy Spirit power. The die's been cast. The decision's been made. I'm a disciple of his. I will not look back, let up, shut up, slow down, or be still. 
My past is redeemed, my present makes sense, and my future is secure. I am finished and done with low living, sight walking, smooth knees, mundane giving, chintzy giving, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, promotions, plaudits, or praise. I don't have to be right, first, tops regarded, praised, or rewarded. I now live by faith, lean by prayer, and labor with prayer, with power. My face is set, my goal is heaven, my way is rough, my companions few, my guide reliable, and my mission clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, turned back, lured away, deluded or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of suffering, hesitate in the presence of adversity, negotiate at the table of compromise, pander in the pools of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I belong to Jesus. I will not give up, let up, shut up, or slow up until I preached, have prayed up, stayed up, and stored up for the cause of Christ. I must preach till all know, go till he comes, give till I drop, and when he comes for his own, he will have no trouble recognizing me. My colors will be clear. Would you pray with me? Would you in this moment join the fellowship of the unashamed? Would you in the severity of the moment in the urgency of the hour, know that you are here by the plan and the providence of God. It's by his providence you live in Amarillo. He had a geographical call. It's by his providence you're alive now. And not a hundred years ago or a hundred years from now, he had a chronological call for you. He wanted you to be alive here now. If he couldn't use you now, you wouldn't be in the now. Would you believe that? Would you know that you are a missionary to this culture? That you are light in the dark? And that Jesus, the light of the world, is ready to use your light to change your world? Would you right now present your body a living sacrifice? Right now say to God, all of me to all of you. Would you say that to him right now? I give myself completely to you. Whatever it takes, whatever you ask, whatever the cost. Say that to him in your heart right now. Whatever it takes, whatever you ask, whatever the cost. Say it to him again. Whatever it takes, whatever you ask, whatever the cost. Would you tonight do whatever it takes to not be conformed to this world, a spiritual inventory, just you and God? Would you make the commitment, drive the stake in the ground tonight to be transformed in this day and these days to be more like Jesus than you have ever been? Would that be the heart cry of your soul this night? Would you join the fellowship of the unashamed? Father God, I'm saying yes. Alongside my sisters and brothers tonight, we are saying yes to you. We are praying for the awakening, the spiritual awakening Amarillo needs and America needs more desperately than ever. And God, we're praying that it would begin with us. We know that you said, if your people called by your name, will humble ourselves and pray and seek your face and turn from our wicked ways, you will forgive our sin and heal our land. Forgive our sin, Lord, and heal our land. Come, Lord Jesus is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.